Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. It's just after nine on the night of the 13th of April 1921 and in a bedroom in her family's farm cottage in Gyra, northern New South Wales, tearful 12-year-old Minnie Bowen has just spoken to her half-sister May Hodder. May Hodder, who died nearly three months ago. Kathleen Bowen, the girl's mother, sits on a bed while Ben Davey, self-styled spiritualist who suggested this seance, stands with Minnie. Other reputable witnesses are also present. Bowen family neighbour Richard Pearson, prominent local business owner Alex Hay, and Constable Nicholas Taylor, one of the three-man Gyra police force that's been kept busy with this mystery for nearly two weeks now. At Ben Davies' urging, Minnie asks May's spirit, What do you want? Minnie listens to responses that only she can hear, but her replies are audible. Very well and all right. Then Minnie says to her dead sister, Very well, May, I will tell her. Ben Davy asks, What did May say? Minnie replies, I can't tell you. The message is for mother. The girl lays her head in her mum's lap. Mrs. Bowen asks, Did May speak? Minnie replies, Yes, mother. Mrs. Bowen says, Well, tell the gentleman what she said. Ben Davy adds, The crowd might as well hear the message. By that, he means the couple of dozen other people in the house, including Minnie's father William and family members, along with concerned citizens and Gyra's top policeman, Sergeant Victor Ridge. Ben Davy summons them and says to Minnie, tell us the message. Her response reduces her family to tears. May says, tell mother I am perfectly happy where I am and that your prayers when I was sick brought me where I am and made me happy. Tell mother not to worry, I'll watch and guard over you all. It's a bittersweet moment. May Hodder is in heaven. But if that's the case, why has she been putting her loved ones through hell? 
I'm Michael Adams, and this is the second and final part of the Forgotten Australia episode, The Gyra Ghost. In Constable Taylor's version of the seance, as related to the Sun newspaper, May Hodder explicitly said through Minnie, quote, Tell mother I am in heaven and am quite happy. So why, pray tell, had this heavenly creature been putting her family through such an ordeal? An article in Bathurst National Advocate newspaper and other regional publications professed to have the answer, quote, Further inquiry by the spiritualist elicited the information that the spirit of the deceased girl was displeased with the girl, this would be Minnie, and its displeasure was shown in the stone throwing for the past fortnight. After some minutes' conversation, in the course of which the girl expressed deep regret at disturbing the spirits of peace, the spirit gave assurances that all would be well and that there would be no further manifestations of displeasure. Ben Davies' own account to his hometown paper, the Urella Times and District Advocate, did not contain these darker details. Neither did Constable Taylor's version as printed in The Sun. What Ben Davy did say was that he spent another hour with the Bowen family and no more knocks or bangs were heard. In Constable Taylor's account, Ben told everyone present he believed that no further sounds would be heard unless the dead girl had additional need to contact the living. She'd do this, Ben thought, through Minnie, who, with her strange staring eyes, was clearly a medium. The good folk of Gyra seemed to think that the spiritualist had done well with a crowd giving him a send-off when he boarded the mail train back to Urala. The seance at the Bowen Cottage made for great headlines. Wagga's daily advertiser went with, Spirits take charge of stone-throwing mystery. The Singleton Argus proclaimed, The Gyra mystery, spiritualist finds solution. Even the usually staid Sydney Morning Herald was on board with, Gyra mystery, little girl statement, clairaudient messages. For the record, Ben Davey was actually more circumspect when interviewed by that Urala newspaper on his return home, saying, quote, I'm just keenly waiting to know if that's the end of the mystery. The next prominent visitor on the scene was a Sunday Times reporter named Captain Alfred Charles Cornwallis Stevens. Captain ACC Stevens, who'd soon master another medium, radio, as one of Australia's best-loved early broadcasters, arrived too late in Gyra to witness medium Minnie channeling her dearly departed sister May. To what had to be his disappointment, the spiritualist cure appeared to have taken, with Thursday night passing peacefully at the Bowen farmhouse. In lieu of any paranormal activity, Captain Stevens contented himself with local colour. He wrote that no one in the district was talking about anything else, and people were genuinely afraid. It's Captain Stevens we have to thank for the description of poor old Mrs. Doran vanishing from the face of the earth with a potato in each hand. Captain Stevens also did an amusing interview with Mr. Cox, the Bowen's eccentric landlord. In conversation with the reporter, this old gent claimed he was an apostle of Christ and demonstrated his complicated system of symbols, numbers and letters to predict future events. One paragraph of his Sunday Times article would show Captain Stevens' open-minded approach while illustrating the sometimes comical lengths locals had gone to to solve the mystery. Quote, Of the spirit idea, all that can be said is that such things have happened before. At present, it is difficult to account for the tappings and thumps in any other way. He went on to describe how the doctor, this is presumably Dr. Harris who'd led a previous stakeout, had tried to trap the obvious suspect. Quote, he 
We sprayed the entire walls of the sleeping room with licorice powder and had a deep hole cut through the shutter, all unknown to anyone in the Bowen household. This was in order to watch Minnie Bowen. The trap failed as Minnie called her father to the bedroom and said, Look daddy, the doctor has put something on the walls. It is noteworthy too that no rappings occurred that night. Other mirthful moments from the mystery included a constable dozing off on the Bowen's veranda only to awake scared out of his wits by a calf mooing nearby and a census taker who was frustrated by residents in the district being too freaked out to open their doors. On Friday morning, Captain Stevens took his life in his hands by traipsing through the bush to the cottage. A door opened and he was met by Bill Hodder. This man, in his 20s, was Minnie's older half-brother, and he was edgy, unshaven, and holding a gun. As the writer set about explaining himself, a rabbit trapper passed by the property. The captain observed of Bill Hodder, quote, The same suspicious frown came again. There was no acting here. The business was badly on the man's nerves. Prior to visiting the cottage, Captain Stevens had evidently spoken to people who'd been at the seance. They, too, were convinced there had been no pretending. Quote, Minnie Bowen must be a remarkable actress if her conversation with the spirit was not genuine. She conversed naturally, easily, and colloquially with her dead sister. Now at the cottage, Captain Stevens got to meet the girl himself. Quote, Minnie is tall, thin, and dark, with peculiar dark, introspective eyes that never seem to miss any movement in a room. When she speaks to you, she never smiles, and seems to look beyond or through you. Like other reporters, Captain Stevens didn't portray this curious-appearing young person as being the likely perpetrator of an elaborate, ongoing hoax. Quote, She is not a clever child in the accepted sense, and is backward and in a low standard for her age at school. She has none of the ordinary stigmata of insanity, such as dilated pupils or an abnormally arched palate. As a little flash forward, Captain Stevens was the next year to review Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's book, The Wanderings of a Spiritualist, which was about his Australian experiences. In Captain Stevens' write-up, he'd mentioned that he'd been at the great man's lectures and had been impressed by his paranormal photo presentations. This willingness to believe was also found in Captain Stevens' descriptions of Minnie, quote, if quiet and rather unusual, she seems just a normal little girl in most respects, except that she has a rather uncanny aptitude for anticipating questions, almost before they are asked, and answering them. While Captain Stevens was a keen observer and a colourful writer, it's frustrating, even 100 years later, that he didn't set down what he'd asked Minnie and what she'd said. After their off-the-record chat, Captain Stevens returned to Gyra Township, there, he got the word he had to be hoping for. The Gyra ghost had made its comeback. In those few hours since he'd left, the Bowens and the Hodders had gone to collect potatoes in one of the fields. They left their cottage with its door closed and its windows still barricaded with wooden shutters and nailed closed with battens. While they were out collecting spuds, Constable Taylor called in at their house and found the premises were secure. But when the family returned, the door had been wrenched open and all the wooden shutters and battens ripped off and left on the veranda along with a large stone. Thing was, they'd only been a few hundred yards away when this had occurred. Captain Stevens picked up the story, quote, 
The police were notified and excited neighbours in motorcars, men on horseback and in buggies, summoned by that mysterious telegraph of the bush, were soon clustered around the house. The writer was among them and secured the photographs which accompany this article. Although Captain Stevens neglected his duties as an interviewer, of all the reporters who covered this story, he alone had the good sense to employ a photographer. His Sunday Times article would be illustrated with the only known images from these events. These four photos comprised a spooky, unsmiling portrait of Minnie, a medium shot of her standing with one of her gun-toting defenders, likely her half-brother Bill, a long shot of family members standing on the cottage's veranda, and a close-up of a partially boarded window whose glass panes were all broken. That Friday afternoon, inspecting the newly attacked house, Bill Hodder found boot prints leaving the premises in a northeasterly direction. It was now disclosed that earlier in the mystery, he'd found similar tracks starting under one of the bedroom windows. The boot prints led out onto the road and then towards the McInnes' residence, a house that had also come under attack by stones. As Captain Stevens wrote, Another curious feature is that two other cottages close by have been bombarded with stones and windows broken, and still farther afield, about 11 miles from Gyra, similar things are happening to another family. With the game afoot, Captain Stevens stuck with the Bowens. Quote, For the rest of the day and during the night, I never let the house or its inmates out of my sight. The Bowens frankly permitted me to scrutinise every hole and corner of the building and to sit at night in the cottage by the kitchen fire. Under a bright moon, Captain Stevens also joined the stakeout that evening. Quote, no one could have approached the cottage unseen. Some of us scattered into the bush to listen for suspicious sounds. Others sat inside to watch the inmates and await further instructions. It was a weird party. In the scullery, some dozen or so were clustered around the aromatic log fire, the sole light, as the windows were shuttered as if for a siege. In the kitchen, the two families of Bowens and Hodders sat, four adults and nine children. Captain Stevens said the parents sat quietly, tending the infants and babies. Quote, The women looked drawn and tired, the men unshaven and weary with night after night of similar vigils. Hour after hour, the watch was kept and nothing happened. As these long hours passed, Captain Stevens focused on the girl. Quote, I never took my eyes off Minnie Bowen and watched her unseen from my corner in the dark. She sat in a chair, chin cupped on hand, the firelight dancing on her not uncomely features. But if there was a movement, those queer brown eyes turned towards it, unblinking and unsmiling. There were no disturbances that Friday night, and Captain Stevens headed back to Sydney. I imagine he was reluctant to leave, but he had to file his story for the Sunday Times 17th of April issue. With strange things again happening at the Bowen farmhouse, Ben Davy, who'd left a conquering hero, returned to Gyra, this time at the wheel of his Buick, hoping to investigate further. Now the spiritualist received a far cooler reception. His own hometown newspaper, the Urala Times, dubbed him B. Conan Davy and said Gyra locals had turned against him. Quote, it was seriously suggested that Ben was a ventriloquist of more than ordinary ability and they were not wanting among his previous convinced audience those protagonists of a gentle yet effective Yankee custom known as lynching. Faced with this, Ben got back in his Buick, made like an egg, and beat it. On Saturday night, the 16th of April, there was a further strange occurrence after a guard at the Gyra house decided to head home. 
Ten minutes later, Minnie heard a shuffling out the back. Thinking the man had returned for some reason, she called out, Very well, and opened the door. A stone hit the house, not two feet from her. It was a clear moonlit night, and no prowler could be seen. Later that evening, another stone hit the back of the house. Yet Sunday night passed calmly. Sydney's Daily Telegraph also sent a reporter. He was to write of a daylight occurrence on Monday the 18th in which a constable hiding in the otherwise empty house heard sharp rapping on the front door. Peering under the door, the constable saw hobnailed boots. As he couldn't arrest a man for knocking, he waited for a window to be broken. But that didn't happen and the man moved off. Later, as the Daily Telegraph reporter wrote, quote, This afternoon, just before a press party arrived, a small stone was thrown through the front door. It rattled down the passage and fell sharply into the kitchen. Mr. Hodder dashed out promptly with a gun. He saw no one, but found a man's hobnailed tracks leading off into the timber. The Daily Telegraph reporter would say, This might seem mysterious until you saw the bush that came right up to the house and afforded any number of hiding spots. Yet, judging by the Sunday Times photograph, the house stood clear of trees. Unlike Captain Stevens, whose reporting was coloured by his belief in spiritualism, the Daily Telegraph's reporter seemed at pains to be sceptical. That night, this writer went to Armadale to file his story. In doing so, he missed another outbreak of strange activity. As the Bathurst Times would report, 50 men surrounded the house. Inside were Constable Taylor and other citizens. Quote, Suddenly, there came half a dozen terrific thumps on the side of the house. The men inside, who could see nothing, rushed out. The men outside, who could see nothing to account for the noise, rushed in. The noise ceased, and that was the end of the ghost for that night. Constable Taylor reportedly said that the sound was like someone had a pumpkin in a sugar bag and was thumping a wall with it. This policeman vehemently denied that he believed in spooks, saying, quote, We'll get to the bottom of it. But Constable Taylor's pragmatism had no place in the Daily Telegraph reporter's story when it appeared the next morning. The headline was, Guyra's Ghost, Half the District Hysterical, Bushtown Comedy, Residents with Blanched Cheeks. This article's intro read, Everyone in Guyra appears to be more or less hysterical over Guyra's ghost, and half the people within 50 miles of the Bush Township are arguing furiously about spiritualism and kindred subjects. The Daily Telegraph reporter had decided that it was stone-throwing wags among the watchers who were to blame for the disturbances. Quote, A number of well-known practical jokers are stirring the broth. The situation is too ridiculous for words. This claim wasn't supported by evidence. If these practical jokers were so well known to the reporter, who was an outsider, how was it that Gyra's police and dozens of vigilantes hadn't identified them and put them behind bars? The Daily Telegraph also had this to say, A number of misguided people who go out every night to guard this harassed family from the ghosts are deeply in earnest and are armed. That this article cast Gyra's cops and citizens who'd been giving up their nights to try to protect the family and catch the culprits as country rubes was surely a source of embarrassment and anger. Whether connected or a coincidence, the same day that this Daily Telegraph article was published, the Inspector General of Police, James Mitchell, told the press in Sydney he'd had enough of this Gyra business. He said that a band of larrikins was surely to blame. 
The Inspector General's lack of confidence in Gyra's constabulary was made clear by him announcing he was sending one of Sydney's best, brightest and toughest young officers to solve the so-called mystery. The man of the hour? Constable Norman Hardy. But Constable Hardy wasn't just a young go-getter, he was an experienced ghost-getter. As extraordinary as it might seem, Constable Hardy claimed he'd encountered a stone-throwing mystery before, and in Gyra no less. The Bathurst Times that day included this, quote, A city policeman states that he lived in Gyra years ago, and that the present affair resembles what took place there during his time. Later reports were to specify that these events had taken place about 15 years ago. Then just a youth, Norman had helped prove the culprit wasn't a ghoul, but a girl. And not just any girl, a girl the same age as Minnie Bowen. The Bathurst Times, quote, A girl of 12 years was in league with a male resident, and the pair carried on a stone-throwing episode for some time. This came as news to Gyra's police, past and present, and to the town's people, whose memories stretch way back into the last century. Between them, they had no record or recollection of any such occurrence. Even so, it's safe to say that Constable Norman Hardy left Sydney with Minnie Bowen already his chief suspect. Had this copper simply made up the story so he'd get a chance to cover himself in glory? To help us answer this question, we need to know a little bit about him. Norman Nelson Hardy was born in Manila in northern New South Wales in 1889. He was raised in this little town and there's no record of him living in Gyra, which lay 120 miles or so to the northwest. By the outbreak of the Great War in August 1914, Norman Hardy was a strapping 23-year-old who stood 6 feet 1 inches. He was among the first Australian men to enlist and became a stretcher-bearer with the first field ambulance. Private Norman Hardy landed at Gallipoli at 9 in the morning on the 25th of April 1915. Stretcher-bearers had one of the worst and most dangerous jobs in the Dardanelles. Unarmed, they collected wounded and dying soldiers from the front lines. Ross Penman, a fellow Anzac from Manila, wrote to his father and told of witnessing Private Norman Hardy in action. His letter was reprinted in the Manila Express newspaper on the 24th of July, 1915. Quote, He is a first AMC stretcher-bearer. He was doing his duty and was doing it cheerfully and well and under the most awkward circumstances. Picking his way down a steep and smooth pathless hill, spent bullets and shrapnel flying about. If you could have seen him, you would have seen his whole heart was in his work. As soon as he could get rid of his burden at the hospital, he would be away again looking for someone else requiring attention. It's hard to believe that Norman Hardy was cheerful all the time because what he saw from dusk till dawn, day after day, week in and week out, must have been utterly horrifying and heartrending. Norman Hardy survived the Gallipoli hellscape and was invalided back to Australia in January 1916. By late March, he'd returned home to Manila. Norman and another veteran were received with a torchlight procession and welcomed by their families, friends, the town's mayor, other dignitaries and cheering citizens. While his fellow digger seemed to be a man of few words, Norman gave a rousing speech to the crowd that was covered in detail by the Manila Express. He described landing at Gallipoli on that historic day. Quote, The Turks were waiting for us and they let us know they were there. Norman said four men in his boat were killed and seven wounded as they were approaching the shore. They were ordered to scramble from their boats. They did, as did other boatloads of diggers. 
Though his numbers don't square with historical accounts, the way Norman perceived and described this part of the landing was, quote, men were drowning in their hundreds. In the months that followed, Norman said he'd handled not hundreds, but thousands of uncomplaining wounded diggers. Quote, when they died in my arms, they died bravely like soldiers. Describing this nightmare, Norman said Gallipoli forced men to become callous and inured to death. So much so, they'd use a fallen mate's corpse as shelter from enemy fire if necessary. Norman described the 24th of May armistice, saying he'd buried Turks all day, but by dusk it seemed there were still just as many corpses as there had been at dawn. He said he still saw those bodies now at night. As a stretcher bearer, Norman had not carried a gun, but he told the crowd he'd sometimes taken shots at the enemy. As those assembled knew, quote, a hardy can always shoot. Manila's citizens applauded this comment. Clearly, they knew that Norman and his people knew their way around firearms. Another March 1916 article in the Manila Express said that Norman had spent six months at Gallipoli. Quote, he was at the landing, also at Lone Pine. This report said Norman's war ended when an exploding bomb left him with a serious hip wound. He'd also suffered shrapnel to one hand. Norman Hardy offered a grimly heroic vision of Gallipoli and his war service, and it's reasonable to assume that the Manila Express took its information from him and took him at his word. I have no doubt that he served bravely and witnessed horrors beyond our imagination. Yet, Norman Hardy's military records at the National Archives of Australia throw doubt on the version he recounted to the Manila Express. He is recorded as having been at Gallipoli from the 25th of April until the 10th of July 1915. Then he was sent to the Second Field Ambulance Hospital with hemorrhoids. The causes of this condition are numerous, but they include constipation due to poor diet and repeated heavy lifting. A man living on biscuits and bully beef while spending his days carrying soldiers on stretchers was a prime candidate. Suffering this painful condition, Norman was transferred to Mudros, the Allied base in Greece and he didn't return to his unit until the 23rd of August. Eight days later, he was back in Mudros, diagnosed with rheumatism and lumbago. While rheumatism is an autoimmune condition, it's aggravated by stress, injuries, chemicals, polluted air, poor diet, lack of good sleep, and overworking the body. Gallipoli offered stretcher bearers these in abundance. Meanwhile, lumbago is lower back pain often caused by overuse of the back and sudden lifting of heavy loads. Again, a stretcher bearer's injury. Norman Hardy was transferred to Malta on the 10th of September and his file does not show him returning to his unit. The Gallipoli evacuation was complete by the 20th of December 1915. The next entry in Norman's file is from the 7th of January. Now he had appendicitis, even though his records show he'd had an appendectomy in 1912. The most likely cause of his pain was stump appendicitis, a condition in which residual tissue becomes inflamed and causes serious symptoms. Norman was transferred from a hospital ship back to Mudros for medical care. Four days later, he was sent to Egypt with a fractured hip. A little more than two weeks later, Norman Hardy was discharged for Australia with, as his file described it, injury to the hip joint. Norman didn't mention any of this to the Manila Express, or if he did, they elected not to publish it. He simply can't have been at the Battle of Lone Pine, as suggested by that second article, because when it happened, from the 6th to the 10th of August, he was still two weeks from returning to Gallipoli. 
Similarly, if Norman had sustained the fractured hip as a result of a bomb exploding near him in combat, it would have been noted as a wound, and that also goes for any shrapnel to his hand. By the time his file showed the hip injury, Australian troops had been out of Gallipoli for close to three weeks. Again, I'm not suggesting that Private Norman Hardy was anything other than a brave digger who did his duty for three months under incredibly difficult circumstances. His illnesses and injuries were obviously related to his service and they shouldn't have been a cause for shame. But it's a good bet that Norman did feel shame. After all, heroes of the Dardanelles weren't laid up in hospitals with hemorrhoids. They didn't spend months away from the action because they were racked by frontline illnesses. Norman's version embellished some events and excluded others. By telling what he would have perceived as a more heroic story, he was also, whether intentionally or inadvertently, doing his bit to help enlistment, which by March 1916 had begun to wane. While Norman Hardy's reasons for telling a few furfies are completely understandable, such discrepancies also paint him as a man who might tailor the truth to put himself in the best possible light, while giving audiences and his superiors the sort of story he knew they wanted to hear. Shortly before the end of the war, in October 1918, Norman Hardy became a probationary constable in the New South Wales Police Force based in Sydney. His luck didn't get any better when it came to injuries in the line of duty. In January 1919, he and other officers broke up a big two-up game that was being held by two dozen men said to be members of the pushers or gangs, then menacing the mean streets of wharf suburbs Ultimo and Piermont. When the arrests led to an affray, Constable Hardy was kicked by one of the thugs, suffering a dislocated knee that put him in hospital for three or four months. Shortly after returning to duty in June 1919, Constable Hardy had a run-in with a thief who was making off with stolen tins of salmon. This bloke threatened him with a tomahawk, saying, Stand back, or I'll split you in two. Wiser from his previous encounter, Constable Hardy pulled his revolver out and told the crook to drop the axe. The bloke didn't comply. As he'd told the Manila crowd, a hardy can always shoot, yet the young constable resisted the temptation to open fire. Instead, he risked life and limb to get in close, struggling with the man and disarming him. The thief still fighting, Constable Hardy drew his baton and whacked him several times on the head before cuffing and arresting the man. Constable Hardy's daring do was recounted in several newspaper stories that had headlines like Tomahawk vs. Revolver. Constable Hardy was back in the news in August 1919 when he chased down two flower thieves. When these fugitives looked like getting away, he pulled his revolver and threatened to shoot. This time, it did the trick, and he was able to collar the crooks. In March 1920, Constable Hardy was involved in yet another altercation, this one with two brothers in Ultimo. The copper alleged that these citizens had assaulted him, but they said he'd been the one who'd assaulted them. In such cases, magistrates almost always believed the police and threw the book at their attackers. But when this matter came to court, the judge noted the brothers were respectable members of the community, and so he only issued them with minor fines. Though the judge did dismiss the charges against Constable Hardy, him making such a comment could be taken to imply he had doubts about the policeman's story. Indeed, the tales we've just heard were all his version of events. Whatever the truth, the hard-charging Constable Hardy had quickly earned a reputation as a frontline soldier unafraid to battle the Ultimo Piemont gangs. The Sun newspaper was soon to characterise him this way, quote, 
fully six feet high and strong and energetic, he has done some fine work in dealing with toughs. He was at Piermont for many years and tuned up the Harris Street push till they ran for cover. He has been hit with bottles and bricks, but has fought his way to victory on every occasion. By the time that article appeared, Constable Hardy had taken tuning up toughs to a new level. In the early hours of Sunday, the 1st of August 1920, Constable Hardy and his partner came across about 15 blokes who were drinking, swearing and carrying on in a street in Ultimo. These men supposedly heaped verbal abuse on the coppers. Constable Hardy and his partner arrested two of them. Then, chaos erupted. Constable Hardy would describe it this way, quote, The crowd came at us with bottles and we had to draw our batons. For about three quarters of an hour, we fought up and down the street. We managed to handcuff two men who we had arrested, and eventually one of the mob struck me over the back of the neck with a bottle, whereupon I drew a revolver and fired two shots in the air, hoping to frighten the mob. But this man came at me again, and in self-defense, I shot him. By this time, I was about done. My pal helped me, and together we got our two prisoners away, but afterwards, I collapsed. The man Constable Hardy had shot was 25-year-old Sidney Turner. The bullet hit him in the groin, and he died soon after his mates got him to hospital. Constable Hardy was to spend nine days in hospital with a suspected fractured skull. In mid-October 1920, the city coroner held an inquest into the shooting. According to a man named Harold Barker, he and Sidney Turner had been walking along Harris Street when he saw Constable Hardy and his partner talking to two men. Sidney Turner had gone over and said something to Constable Hardy. The officer had responded by pulling out his revolver and shooting Sidney Turner point-blank. Another Ultimo witness told the inquest that no one had attacked the police. So, was Sidney Turner an innocent who'd been murdered in cold blood by Constable Norman Hardy? A check of the dead man's military files show that Sidney Turner was Ultimo born and bred. He worked as a news vendor until he enlisted in May 1916. Sidney Turner had a checkered record punished several times for being absent without leave and for drunkenness. Yet, this wasn't too unusual. Diggers were a rowdy lot. But when Sidney Turner was in England in mid-1918, recovering after being gassed in France, he racked up more such charges. And then, two weeks after the armistice, he wound up in a police court for a drunken assault. He pled guilty and was sentenced to 160 days detention. This at least tells us that Sidney Turner did have form for such offences. As for Constable Hardy, there were two ways to view his policing career leading up to the shooting. One was that he was a violent hard nut who'd been looking for an excuse to use his revolver. The other was that he was a good cop who'd previously shown great restraint, but this time had faced a situation in which he'd had to shoot in self-defence. The coroner found that the killing was justified. Though legally vindicated, Constable Hardy remained in the papers as the case against another attacker from that day made its way through the courts. The case ended in mid-March 1921 with this man's conviction. Newspaper accounts of the trial noted that Constable Hardy was still off duty as a result of the head injury he'd sustained. Yet Constable Norman Hardy was back on duty a month later when he told his boss, Police Inspector General James Mitchell, that he was just the man to go ghostbusting up in Gyra. While the strong arm of the law was about to reach the little town in the form of Constable Hardy, a gentler investigator was already on the scene in the shape of Harry J. Moores. H.J. Moores, as he was known, was an American-born trader who lived in Samoa. 
He was a friend of Robert Louis Stevenson and had written a book about the author. And just a few months ago, he'd met Sir Arthur Conan Doyle in New Zealand. The two men formed a friendship with H.J. Moores describing how he'd gone unknown into a Sydney spiritualist group where one of the believers had been able to divine this about him. Quote, Above your head, I see a man, an artist, long hair, brown eyes, and I get the name of Stevens. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was impressed, remarking, quote, If he was indeed unknown, this would seem fairly evidential. H.J. Moores got to Gyra on Monday, in time to meet that Daily Telegraph reporter before he left for Armadale. H.J. Moores told the man, quote, I am not a spiritualist, but I am an interested inquirer into all things which suggest spirit manifestations. The Sydney Morning Herald was sympathetic to H.J. Moores and described him as, quote, an earnest, thoughtful investigator. Though he'd arrived in Gyra on Monday, he doesn't seem to have been present at the Bowen Cottage for that night's noises. Rather, he met Minnie the next day and would describe her as normal, though he noted that her mother had called her highly imaginative. So far, so similar to other reports. But having met Minnie, the family, and seen the state of their house, H.J. Moores had an explanation that was far more specific than those previously offered. As the Sydney Morning Herald was to report, quote, Dishevelled Gyra, in Mr. Moore's calm opinion, is the subject of a typical demonstration of poltergeist. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewellery from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. As we heard in part one of this episode, the word poltergeist in April 1921 was unknown to most Australians. The Sydney Morning Herald report made this clear when it continued, What then is poltergeist? It is a German term for racketing spirit. That's not exactly right, but it's close enough. The paper had to turn to the Encyclopedia Britannica to inform readers that such phenomena had been observed all over the world and, quote, are frequently connected with a person, often a child, suffering from nervous malady or recent nervous shock. This seemed to fit with Minnie. The long article cited numerous overseas cases of poltergeist activity, noting that while some believe the causes were supernatural, Others decried these so-called disturbances as the work of fakers. Returning to H.J. Moores and his observations in Gyra, the Sydney Morning Herald said that the night after his arrival, the phenomenon had struck another cottage 200 or 300 yards from the Bowen house. This appeared to have been the residence that Bill Hodder and his family had lived in before they moved in with the Bowens for the supposed safety to be had in numbers. H.J. Moore said he'd inspected the result of this attack, and the Sydney Morning Herald relayed his description. Quote, the windows were broken, the contents of the house thrown out, and the house within was in a state of indescribable chaos. Mr. Moores added that he was convinced, from his own investigations, that the strange occurrences were not the result of larrikinism. Why? Quote, Mr. Moores is almost certain that if it had been larrikinism or trickery, then those responsible would have been shot long ago, for the house and its vicinity were something of an armed camp until the police stepped in and requested people not to arm themselves. 
It was a fair point. Larrikins weren't known for their stealth and secrecy. Surely, if they'd been to blame, they would have betrayed themselves by now. H.J. Moore's returned to Sydney on Wednesday night and gave the interview we've been hearing to the Sydney Morning Herald the following day. During his brief stay in Gyra, he'd befriended prominent local businessman Alex Hay, who'd been at the seance and also present for several stakeouts. Mr. Hay agreed to keep H.J. Moore's apprised of further happenings. Constable Norman Hardy was by Wednesday night on the case in Gyra. That evening, there were no disturbances. The following night, Constable Hardy, the three local police, Alex Hay and other citizens were inside the cottage. Outside, around 50 men stood guard. At 8pm, a stone hit an outside wall opposite to where Constable Hardy was on duty inside. He rushed out and another stone smashed into the house beside him. A search found no one. This seems like a good time to consider how much did the Gyra folk know about Constable Hardy. The story of the shooting had been news everywhere and had been recounted as recently as a month ago in the Sydney papers. It's a good bet that at least a few locals were acquainted with Constable Hardy's reputation and in such a small community, word would have gotten around. The copper from Sydney had shot a bloke dead. So any mug throwing stones with him about might be playing with not fire, but gunfire. Yet two stones had just been hurled. On Friday afternoon, Alex Hay sent a telegram to H.J. Moores in Sydney, giving an account of these happenings which he said included strange noises. H.J. Moores then shared this telegram with the Sydney Morning Herald, quote, All members, household closely watched by detectives while knocking occurred. Bright moonlight outside, where several police stationed at vantage points. No man seen near house. Neither were supposed stones found near walls. Detective made public statement that he was perfectly satisfied no member of the family was responsible. Mystery deepens. Guy Republic opinion now overwhelmingly favours your theory. Do not be afraid to mention my name. Also, vindicate Gyra police and public. Given Constable Hardy's attitude, I think he said that the family was above suspicion in order to lull his suspect into a false sense of security. On Friday night, Constable Hardy and company resumed stakeout duties. Nothing happened. Then, on Saturday, the 23rd of April, 1921, Constable Norman Hardy at last solved the Gyra mystery. At least, in the official version of events. The police report he made to his boss described the stone impacts on Thursday night and the piece that followed the next evening. But on Saturday night, the watch was scaled back to a skeleton crew of trusted watchers in order to weed out any possible wags in the crowd. He and Sergeant Ridge hid in the bush on the south side of the house. Mr. Starr, quote, a respectable local farmer, kept an eye on the north side. From there, Mr. Starr saw Minnie Bowen throw several stones at her own home. The report said, quote, he informed the police who questioned the girl. She at first denied any knowledge of stone-throwing on that day, but when confronted with Mr. Starr in the presence of her parents, she admitted throwing stones. The girl afterwards admitted that she was responsible for the knocking on the wall, which she effected by striking the inner walls at night time with a stick when people were keeping watch outside. The report continued. She remarked, I was always careful that I was not watched or seen by anybody. The report continued. 
The police are of the opinion that the girl is responsible for most of the annoyance and damage to the property caused recently at Gyra, assisted by relatives and local use of the larrikin type. The police say that the girl, Minnie Bowen, is not of strong intellect. So, Constable Hardy thought this dull child had made fools of everyone, with a bit of an assist from her family and rogue Gyrans. What was the motive? This wasn't explained. But the official version did make reference to Constable Hardy's role in the Gyra stone-throwing case from 15 or so years ago. It also made this claim about the district in general, quote, The majority of the residents considered that these manifestations were supernatural. The official police version seemed to indicate that it had been Constable Hardy who'd solved the case, yet this didn't square with the Daily Telegraph's report on the 26th of April that said it was Sergeant Ridge who'd taken Minnie's confession. And in this account, the girl said she'd caused just three wrappings on two separate occasions when she wasn't being watched. Quote, The girl said she did this for a joke. She further admitted that on Saturday she threw three small stones on the roof to frighten her sister-in-law, Mrs. Hodder, who was washing clothes near the house. She denied all knowledge or complicity in any other matters in connection with the affair. The police give credence to the child's story. The police giving credence would appear to be the Gyra officers, rather than Constable Hardy, who said that she'd been responsible for most of the disturbances. Given what we've heard about the extent of the stone throwing and the various cacophonies, it's hard to believe that Minnie was responsible for more than the minor mischief she confessed to late in the piece. Alex Hay certainly thought so when, as promised, he sent a telegram to update H.J. Moores, who then gave this message to the Sydney Morning Herald. Quote, Nothing happened last two nights, but under police examination, girl admitted having thrown three small stones. This, however, does not explain mysterious night knocking, neither does it assist to solve the mystery. Detective returned to Sydney without having achieved definite results. Majority of people here convinced mystery will remain unsolved. In trying to reconcile these contradictions, newspapers reported that police believed five or six unidentified locals operating independently of Minnie had been involved, possibly with the goal of getting the Bowens out of the house, or possibly to promote the cause of spiritualism by creating a mystery. Both explanations were fairly thin and didn't account for the undisputed fact that no one had been detected by an army that had encircled the house for close to three weeks. Even so, now there was an official explanation, some newspapers took the chance to pile on. Calling Gyra the potato metropolis, the son said of the mystery, quote, Its unravelling has made the credulous look foolish and established the philosophy of the incredulous materialist. The paper said that the police's long investigation meant, quote, The mystery has resolved itself into just the sort of prank that bibulous hobbledehoys would indulge in after a spiritual indulgence at their favourite tavern. Without resorting to the admittedly wonderful slur bibulous hobbledehoys, Newcastle Morning Herald and Miner's advocate questioned just how sophisticated Australia really could be if such nonsense could take hold. The whole affair, the newspaper said, recalled the sorry days of witch dunking. The newspaper's big regret was that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle wasn't still in the country when this had taken place. If he had, he would have been sucked in and discredited. The Newcastle Herald was glad the police hadn't moved fast, giving, quote, time enough for the faithful in the cult of wrappings to betray their belief and suffer humiliation. 
What these mean-spirited, anti-spiritualist mockeries failed to take into account was that dozens of Gaira people had for weeks done their level best not to solve a haunting, but to catch human perpetrators. Even as the critics were crowing, the mystery was still playing out in Gaira. On Wednesday night, the 27th of April, the Bowen house was hit by several stones while Minnie was inside. Her father William rushed out and fired his gun several times into the darkness. Two days later, Alex Hay, who'd come to represent Gaira in the press at least, gave a long statement to the Sydney Morning Herald criticising Constable Hardy's report. What really rankled was the blithe assertion that most residents had been convinced they were facing a supernatural entity. Quote, 50 good healthy country businessmen and farmers together with the police do not go out at night and lay in concealments behind logs, stones or trees for the purpose of trying to find a spook. That was probably true, but Alex Hay had to take some of the blame for creating this impression. That's because his first telegram to poltergeist proponent H.J. Moores had said, quote, Mystery deepens, Gyra public opinion now overwhelmingly favours your theory. Continuing his statement in the Sydney Morning Herald, Mr Hay said that Minnie had thrown two or three stones, not at night, but in the middle of the day. These stones had been aimed at the iron roof over where her sister-in-law was washing clothes. He said that that farmer, Mr Starr, had not been part of any stakeout. Instead, he'd simply wandered by. Quote, if it hadn't been for a passing farmer seeing, she would only have been reprimanded by her people for what was a prank. Besides, no stone had been aimed at the iron roof previously. All had hit walls and windows, so it could hardly be said to account for those. Mr Hay next tackled the subject of the noises. Quote, As regards the inside knocking on the walls, which Constable Hardy has so conveniently credited to Minnie, this also is a small matter, and did not happen until the other rappings had been going on for many nights. The girl's own version of the matter is that she walked into the room and picked up a piece of wood which had been used for propping up the window sash, and with this she gave two taps on the wall. She was observed doing so, however, and says that she was well aware of the fact. How was it, Mr Hay asked, that Minnie hadn't been detected over the past three weeks? Quote, it must be very hard indeed for Police Sergeant Ridge to learn that his department gave credit to the belief that Minnie was responsible for the mysterious night knockings as he sat in the same room as her on several occasions whilst the knocking went on. Mr Hay then cited numerous examples of times when Constable Taylor or himself or other reliable people had been watching the girl when these loud noises were heard. In support of Mr. Hay, it's worth remembering that other witnesses had said some of these bangings shook the cottage to its foundations and could be heard a hundred yards away. Tackling Constable Hardy's claim to have helped solve a Gyra stone-throwing mystery 15 years earlier, Mr. Hay wrote in the Sydney Morning Herald that Sergeant Ridge's predecessor, Sergeant O'Neill, had never heard of any such occurrence, and neither had old-timers whose memories went back a lot further. Now... As noted in part one, stone-throwing outbreaks attracted much press attention. While six issues of the Gyra Argus are missing from the start of April to mid-May 1921, the archives are otherwise intact dating back to 1902 and have been digitised by the National Library of Australia as part of its Trove database. 
Using this, I searched hard for any mention of previous mysterious happenings involving stones being thrown in Gyra. There was nothing. Yet, a single article in Constable Hardy's hometown newspaper, the Manila Express, on the 3rd of May, 1921, clarifies things. Quote, The constable said he had assisted in unravelling a somewhat similar mystery in that part of the state some years ago. Gyra residents state that this was not so. By way of explanation, it may be worth mentioning that the former stone-throwing incident mentioned by Constable Hardy took place in the Manila district. As a young man, he was a member of the party with Sergeant Sewell when the Glen Barra stone-throwing mystery was solved. In that case, the ghost was a girl. So, jumping back 20 years, the Manila Express on the 31st of August 1901 ran a story headlined, Stone-throwing Mystery. The article told of the, quote, somewhat sensational and extraordinary case of systematic stone-throwing. The target was a house about 20 miles east of Manila at Glen Barra that was occupied by boundary rider Andrew Mitchie and his family. Like the previous cases we heard about in part one, this stone throwing had striking parallels with later events in Gyra. The stones had been hitting the Mitchie house on and off for months, sometimes when witnesses were present. No culprits could be found outside. Though the stone-throwing had ceased about a month ago, it had started up again in late August. Mr. Mitchie called on two men who were camped nearby to come help him and his family watch the place. While they were present, there came loud rappings or thuddings on the outer walls. The men rushed outside and saw nobody. According to the Manila Express, the house had been severely damaged by the stones. Quote, the front door has been knocked off the hinges, the roof is dented, and the slabs have been knocked out of place. The article concluded, The whole affair appears to be a complete mystery. A follow-up article a week later said a large stone had come flying through Mr. Mitchie's front door, striking one of his daughters in the head and leaving her with a nasty wound. Things got even weirder. Quote, the mysterious perpetrator of the bombardment adds a little variety to his ammunition and one night Mr. Mitchie's dog was thrown over the fence. During the first half of September, the intensity of the attacks continued, with the Manila Express on the 14th of that month providing another update. Quote, the residence was stormed at 5 o'clock the other afternoon in broad daylight. The stones were seen to be coming from the direction of the creek, which pursues its winding course about 30 yards in front of the house. And almost while the stones were flying, one of the members of the house rushed to the spot from whence the missiles were coming, but, as usual, could not see or hear anything, the bombardment in the meantime having ceased. Suspicions, of course, had turned to the younger members of the family. Quote, so, with a view of testing the supposition, the children were kept inside for a few days, but the stone-throwing continued. Three men went to investigate, led by Senior Constable Sewell. The party included a respected Manila citizen named Mr. Lee Hartley. Constable Sewell and Mr. Hartley's conflicting accounts would form the basis for a colourful story in the Manila Express on the 21st of September. The writer offered a lengthy description of their trek out into the wilds of Glen Barra. Then, taking us into the minds of these men, quote, A house is reached. The house the three have been seeking. The roof is intact. 
The door hangs serenely and securely on its hinges. The panes in the small windows are whole. The walls of the house stand as erect as any other walls and look as perfect. Surely, this is not the place. Stones, some small, none very large, are seen everywhere, just as they had fallen after having completed their mission. But where is the dented roof? Where the hingeless door? The battered wall? This cannot be the... Here, the writer cut himself off as a member of the household. Unidentified, but presumably, Mr. or Mrs. Ritchie appeared to confirm this was indeed the house of mystery. This resident said, Oh, I'm glad you've come. You're just in time. Fourteen stones have been thrown since dinner time, and there's numbers on them. Constable Sewell carefully inspected these latest ghostly missiles. They were flat stones upon which numerals and queer hieroglyphics had been written. Two were marked with the numbers 70080 and 7800. What did that mean? Constable Sewell had no idea, but he asked the Mitchie kids to write these figures in his notebook. The scribbling provided by eldest daughter Mary was similar enough to make her the prime suspect. Before dawn the next day, the men staked out the house. They watched for hours, but saw nothing suspicious. Quote, then they walked up to the house and, according to the senior constable, the girl confessed to him in a lane, when no one else was nigh, to throwing some of the stones. She threw some and her younger sister threw more. It was pretty convenient, a confession witnessed by no one other than the investigating senior constable. The Manila Express's reporter, informed by Mr. Hartley, noted, quote, the girl says she did nothing of the kind, neither did she throw any stones, and both her father and mother refused to believe that she knows anything about the matter. When the party got back to Manila, Constable Sewell showed the two marked stones to the reporter so he could compare them to the numbers that Mary had written in the notebook. The writer said they did look very similar. Further, the policeman told him the stones around the house were all small, and those reports about the residents being nearly destroyed were simply untrue. Constable Sewell said that several stones had hit the house while he was there, but these were pebbles that, quote, would not have broken an egg or hurt a tomtit. As for the wrappings, the policeman said the daughters slept near a wall and could bang it at their leisure in the middle of the night. Yet Mr. Hartley told the Express reporter he didn't believe Mary was to blame. Quote, I had dinner at Mitchie's last Friday, and whilst the girl was in the room, two stones struck the roof with some force just as if they'd been thrown in quick succession by some person who was in a hurry to get away. As for the wrappings, Mr. Hartley said he knew of another person who'd asked where the children were one night when visiting. This person had been shown them in their room and was watching them when wrappings occurred for which they couldn't have been responsible. Right up to the policeman getting a spontaneous confession and a prominent citizen casting doubt on the official explanation, the Glen Barra case had much in common with the Gyra happenings. As previously noted, mystery, like history, doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme. Certainly, it would have been ringing a few bells 20 years later for Constable Norman Hardy. He'd been 11 years old and living in Manila when the Glen Barra mystery unfolded. In 1901, Manila had a population of 857. In such a small community, young Norman Hardy would have known Constable Sewell and likely Lee Hartley, who was very active in sports in the town. But nowhere in the Manila Express articles is young Norman mentioned as helping the police solve the mystery. However, 
In the 7th of September issue, before the affair was officially resolved, the Manila Express did report this, quote, Naturally, all sorts of sensational and highly coloured reports concerning the author of the unusual disturbances are in circulation. It can't be human. It must be some other monster, one person admits with all seriousness, and a party of young men are anxious to equip and go out to the lonely neighbourhood to unravel, if possible, the mystery. Whether that party of young men included Norman and whether they ever went out on some boy's own adventure isn't known. What to make of his story 20 years later? Was he misremembering or was he misquoted? Both are possible. It's also very possible that, as after Gallipoli, he embellished events to make himself look better and to ensure he got the Guernsey to go to Gyra. What he most definitely knew was that Constable Sewell had sorted out Glen Barra quick sticks by getting a confession from the girl, and after that, the case was closed. On the 23rd of April, 1921, Constable Hardy did the same thing. But the case wasn't quite closed. Mysterious matters centred on Minnie Bowen persisted in northern New South Wales. On Tuesday, the 11th of May, a Sydney Morning Herald headline read, quote, Gyra Stonethrower shifts quarters. Since the start of the month, Minnie had been staying with her grandmother, Mrs Shelton, who lived with her son Alf at Glen Innes. All had been well until Monday night, the 10th of May, when noises were heard like stones bumping on walls. As the Herald reported, quote, Constable Stewart was sent along to investigate, and while he and several others who had arrived were walking around the house, a stone hit the window of Alf Shelton's bedroom, breaking a pane of glass and becoming entangled in the curtain. This stone was made of ordinary white metal and was similar to many others on the footpath in front of the house. With Minnie inside the house, Glen Innes constables kept watch. They heard a series of sharp knocks but couldn't determine if they'd come from inside or outside. The Herald again, quote, One neighbour named Mr Marden said the noises were like the sounds caused by an axe being struck heavily against the wall. Nevertheless, Constable Stewart, taking his lead from Constable Hardy, quote, came to the conclusion the girl was responsible and declined to stay any length of time. After his departure, the inmates of the house and the neighbours outside were emphatic in their statements that they heard many noises until midnight, as of stones hitting the walls or the roof. Tamworth's The Northern Daily Leader reported that this, quote, shower of gravel was the prelude to an intermittent fusillade of stones. Also, knocks on the walls inside. A number of panes of glass were smashed and several people had narrow escapes from hurling missiles. But a friend of Alf's named Tom Ebsworth, who had tea with the family, stated that while watching unobserved, he'd seen Minnie strike the wall with her elbows. She denied this emphatically. The Braidwood Dispatch and Mining Journal, meanwhile, said, quote, One neighbour saw a stone falling and says it fell straight down onto the roof and could not have been thrown by anyone on the ground. A Sergeant Ryan was called to the house to speak to Minnie, and he told her that if she started her tricks in his town, she'd have to be sent away. To this policeman, Minnie again denied having knocked on the wall. But after his visit, peace returned to Glen Innes. Nevertheless, Mrs. Bowen came to collect Minnie and they returned to Gyra. Backing Minnie all the way, a local said he was ready to wager £500 that the girl was innocent of any involvement. This fellow would never have to pay up because there would be no further stones or noises. Someone else was now willing to spend their money, 
not to put the ghost to rest, but to resurrect it. Resurrect it for the movies. This was John Cosgrove, a well-known comedy actor. Even before Minnie got back from Glen Innes, John Cosgrove was on his way to Gyra to produce, direct and star in a film about the ghost. By the 12th of May, he was in town with a cameraman, an actress, an assistant and a cinematographer to make what was described as a, quote, series of humorous pictures founded on the puzzling story of the mystery. The filmmaker was providing his own ghost. That was his assistant, wearing a mask recycled from the 1919 Australian horror hit The Face at the Window. As for John Cosgrove, he'd play the lead comic role of Sherlock Doyle, based on You Know Who. The first news article about the film appeared in the long-lost Gyra Argus on the 12th of May, which we know about because it was referenced in the Warwick Daily News a few days later. This first article said that locals were going to appear in John Cosgrove's movie. But the filmmaker had a far bolder plan than just casting garden-variety Gyrans. He was going to shoot his film at the actual house and feature Minnie Bowen and her family. In his version of how the movie was made, John Cosgrove arrived at the haunted house at 11 in the morning and knocked on the door. This was pretty brave given recent reports that Minnie's dad had fired his gun in response to renewed disturbances. Getting no answer, John Cosgrove went around the back of the house and loudly proclaimed that everything was okay because he wasn't a ghost. Bill Hodder came out first, followed by the rest of the family. The details of this come from the 20th of May issue of the Richmond River and Northern Districts Advertiser, itself citing an earlier report in Sydney's Evening News. Quote, Mr. Cosgrove told them exactly what he wanted, to film the place and themselves. They objected at first, but soft persuasion worked a change. He not only had free run of the house, had the Sydney ghosts stalking about the rooms and peering through the windows, but Mr. Bowen actually got down his gun, loaded it, and exuberantly demonstrated how he had shot the ghost. All this, Mr. Cosgrove filmed. The article went on to say that the movie maker had wanted to film Mr. Bowen in the act of throwing a stone. This apparently was where the Bowen patriarch drew the line, saying, no, they'd blame me. John Cosgrove's The Gyra Ghost is one of Australia's many, many lost silent films. That means we don't really know how much Minnie and her family featured, if they featured at all, and what, if anything, they really did for John Cosgrove's cameras. As a producer hoping to turn a fast pound, he'd obviously talk up this angle, or maybe make it up, for the publicity it'd bring. John Cosgrove got his film in the can fast. Smith's Weekly would later claim it had been done in three days. That doesn't sound too far off the mark. Given the guy Argus announced he was in town to shoot on the 12th of May, and he was talking to the evening news in the past tense about his adventures just a week later. Editing was rapid too, so that by the 19th of June, ads and articles were announcing the Gyra Ghost was to have its Sydney premiere at the Hippodrome on the 25th of that month. The sensation of a century, said an ad in truth, 4,000 feet feature of the great mystery. 4,000 feet translates to about 50 minutes. The surviving available visual material is a shot of the film's poster, which featured a skeletal apparition wearing a swirly cape. The poster's text read, quote, Taken at Gyra on the spot, showing the home of the Bowen family, showing the actual stone throwing caught by the camera. Most sensational scenes. Flashlight photographs taken revealing most remarkable results at night time. Camera especially designed for night work by Mr. A. Moulton. 
this was the film's cinematographer. And after developing the film, it showed unexpected results, featuring John Cosgrove, Australia's greatest mystery. The day after the first screening, Truth reported that the Gyra Ghost was shown to a capacity house. By way of a review, quote, the film faithfully shows all that John alleged. Thing was, this little article would have been placed by John himself, the newspaper space, part of the package when he bought ads. The reality, as we'll soon hear, was that the film was a flop. So much so that John Cosgrove tried to cut his losses by selling it to another exhibitor. After that, the Gyra Ghost made a few fleeting appearances in regional cinemas. An ad taken out by Everybody's Pictures, which was located in Penrith Temperance Hall for a screening on the 16th of August 1921, read, The Gyra Ghost Sensation, featuring Minnie Bowen herself. Taken at Gyra, showing the home of the Bowen family, inside the haunted house, Australia's greatest mystery on pictures. The movie was one half of a double feature that day, the other attraction being a cheery-sounding movie called Race Suicide, which, quote, deals with the great problem of the sexes most delicately. What is a home without a baby? A month later, it was showing in Port Macquarie, billed as an Australian comedy that offered five reels of laughter and had been made with a specially designed camera used to get the night scenes. While it seems the Bowen house did feature, if Minnie and her family had gotten any screen time, surely every poster and advertisement would have ballyhooed this. As we've heard, most didn't. In this vein, John Cosgrove surely would have mentioned Minnie's appearance when he wrote a long career memoir for Brisbane's Sunday Mail, which ran over eight weeks from March to May of 1925. But he didn't. Instead, he had this to say, quote, we cast various villagers for parts in the great production, but none of the budding Valentinos would face the camera. One of them even pulled a gun on me when I ordered the cameraman to shoot. Even a century ago, this was a well-worn joke. John Cosgrove continued, quote, To make my ghost story more realistic, I borrowed a property from Rock Phillips. It was the hideous mask of Le Loup from Anderson's drama The Face at the Window. That put the lid on my bush actors. When they saw my assistant in a white sheet with a mask surmounting it, they jointly and severally refused to have any more to do with me. To me, this sounds very much like Gyra's people not wanting a bar of a schlocky parody that had hold them up to further ridicule. Faced with this rebellion, John Cosgrove did what he could with the location. Quote, I took about 800 feet of the farm and its surroundings and filled in the rest with a real company of actors. When my effort was developed and printed, I joined it up with an old film called The House of Fear. When John Cosgrove said, joined it up, I think he meant it in the literal sense. That is, he spliced in footage from the 1915 American Mystery House film of that name. Such practices to pad out productions have long been used by low-budget producers, and it was easier still in the silent days when you could write title cards to explain how disparate scenes were supposedly linked. It is possible that by joined it up, John Cosgrove meant he paired the Gyra Ghost with the House of Fear as a double feature, yet Hippodrome ads don't mention the other film. As for the Gyra Ghost playing to a capacity crowd at the Hippodrome, John Cosgrove admitted, quote, I hired worse Hippodrome and prepared for my profits. The first night, the house was about £5, which didn't pay for lighting. The sight of that huge place, with its rows and rows of empty seats, was not cheering when I thought of the £100 it had cost to make the picture. That his film flopped perhaps shouldn't have come as a surprise to him. 
1920s audiences had a lot of movies to choose from, with silent film art by then very sophisticated. To attract a crowd, a shonky effort would need a strong gimmick. But by June, the Gyra ghost was old news, and anyway, it had supposedly been proved a hoax. Further, if audiences didn't see Minnie, or barely saw her, all they'd be left with was hoary comedy, a horror mask they'd already seen in a better film, and footage recycled from a creaky old American flick. You can see how word of mouth would have been close to non-existent. John Cosgrove claimed he sold the film at a loss, only for the buyer to make a big profit that included £300 from Gyra screenings alone. Again, a good story, but tough to believe. Given the reception he'd received in the town, it's hard to imagine the citizenry turning up to the cinema in droves. With the average ticket price at the town's picture house around one shilling, to generate £300, every man, woman and child in Gyra would have needed to see the movie about six times. As a news story and as a film, the Gyra ghost soon faded from most people's memories. As far as we know, life returned to normal for the Bowen family. In early September 1921, Gyra's other mystery from earlier that year was finally solved. A couple of rabbit trappers found the remains of a woman's skirt on the rocky ledge of a gully. This was about a mile and a half from where old Mrs. Doran had lived before she vanished. A search of the gully turned up more pieces of fabric and several human bones. It was confirmed that the dress was the one that Mrs. Doran had been wearing when she disappeared. As the Armadale Chronicle noted, quote, It is a remarkable fact that a large party of men who were searching for her shortly after her disappearance camped within 30 yards of the place where the body was lying. Minnie Bowen was to marry labourer Frank Ince in 1928. The couple lived in Armadale and would later buy a dairy farm. To this day, family law maintains that Minnie was telekinetic throughout her life. Maybe so, but she didn't make the newspapers again for supernatural reasons. On the 24th of April 1943, the Australian Women's Weekly ran a photo story about women in the New England district of New South Wales forming the WASPs, the Women's Agricultural Security Production Service. Their mission? To make the most of valuable wartime crops. Working with these heroines of the field was, quote, Mrs. Minnie Ince, a bright patch among the drab beans in the blue overalls and felt hat, who has been eight months in the wasps. She formerly kept a boarding house. One of the smaller photos that went with the article showed Minnie in the background of a shot of women using pitchforks to unload hay from a cart. It's a blurry picture, but Minnie appeared to have become a woman who would smile for the camera. Minnie who by now had three children of her own, also made the local papers fairly regularly during the 1940s and 1950s for her preserves, jellies, ducks and floral arrangements, which won awards in local competitions. While Minnie's adult life played out like those of many country women, her end was swift and unexpected. She died on the 2nd of December 1970, aged 62, as the result of being hit by a car in Armadale. So, who or what was the Gyra ghost? Was there proof of a phantom or a poltergeist? I guess I'm more scully than Mulder, so I'd say no. Yet the official explanation is far from credible. The Inspector General of Police clearly wanted the case closed, and in Constable Norman Hardy, he had just the man for the job. 
While he might have believed he'd done everything he needed to, to my mind, Constable Hardy ignored so much contradictory evidence that you could reasonably call his conclusion a cover-up. I'm not saying this was done in service of a conspiracy, but rather expediency. The police did believe that if the Gyra mystery was starved of publicity, it'd fade away. By declaring case closed, they were proved right, at least in the short term. Yet long term, Constable Hardy and his bosses achieved the opposite of their goals. His rudimentary investigation and unconvincing report have helped to ensure that the Gyra ghost has not been laid to rest. A century later, people are still asking questions, and the Gyra ghost remains Australian history wrapped in mystery. Researching this episode, I have, as usual, made extensive use of the National Library of Australia's Trove database and relied on family, police and military records found at Ancestry.com.au and at the National Archives of Australia. What surprised me, given it's such a fascinating story, was how few detailed accounts there are of the Gyra ghost. But there is one I'd recommend. This is Daniel Best's book, Mystery, Myth and Misdirection, Hunting the Gyra Ghost, which he published last year. It's thanks to his research we know Minnie's real date of death, correcting previous accounts that said she was killed as late as 1988. Daniel's book also lays out two tantalising theories. One is that May Hodder's baby could have been fathered by William Bowen, her stepfather, who was closer in age to her than to his wife, her mother, Kathleen. The other theory Daniel puts forward is that the man who menaced Minnie and threw stones at her right at the start of the Gyra events was a convicted rapist named Benjamin Maguire. Daniel argues that this creep might have been partially responsible for the attacks on the house. I won't divulge more because they're his theories based on his research. His book, the title again is Mystery, Myth and Misdirection, Hunting the Gyra Ghost, is available at amazon.com.au. As for me, I'll be back with brand new episodes of Forgotten Australia in time for Anzac Day. Between now and then, I'd love it if you'd consider helping me to keep making this podcast by becoming a supporter. The very most you'll pay is 26 cents a day. And as a thank you, you'll get early episodes, bonus shows, and the full audiobook of Australia's Sweetheart. Right now, supporters can hear a bonus episode called The Bones and the Beast, which covers two amazing murder mysteries from the 1930s and 1940s, and features one of the most hideous killers Australia has ever seen. Next up, supporters will get an in-depth look at Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's spooky spiritualist tour of Australia. You can expect ectoplasm and much more muck and mystery. Supporters also get a shout-out on the show, so a big thank you to Catherine Curry and Brad Steen, who've become patrons in the past week. To learn more about supporting Forgotten Australia, go to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com forward slash Forgotten Australia. You can also get there by going to ForgottenAustralia.com forward slash support. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. As always, thanks for listening. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.